the 6th of June, 1944, a band of US Army Rangers undertook one of the Second World War's most daring missions. Ahead of the main D-Day landings, under ferocious fire, they had to land on an exposed beach, scale a 100-foot cliff, before attacking a well-armed and heavily defended German force. The enemy was dug into a maze of trenches and fortified bunkers, and the Rangers knew this was an operation that would result in heavy losses. Against overwhelming numbers, their mission was to silence the huge artillery guns that would target the invading Allied armies that were about to land on D-Day. But we can now reveal a secret about this famous operation that was classified for over 60 years. Colonel Rudder's mission wasn't just to take Point de Hoc. There was another objective in his battle plans, which until now hasn't been told. This is the true story of seven of the Rangers who took part in the mission to protect hundreds of thousands of other troops landing on the Normandy beaches. Sadly, not all of them would make it through. They were the Cliff Rangers of Calvados. I'm Bruce Crompton, history fanatic, military antique collector, an ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to keep these important institutions and the heroes contained within them alive for future generations. June the 6th, 1944, at 0400 hours, eight miles from the French coast in the English Channel, the Rangers were preparing themselves for a beach assault. They must take out the heavily armed German defences who were determined to protect the artillery targeting the D-Day landings. The going was rough. Four foot high roller coaster waves were crashing over the sides of the boats, filling them with water. Once they land on the beaches, they have to climb the 100 foot cliff face of Point de Hoc on ropes before taking on the German defences and destroy the big guns trained on Omaha and Utah beaches. Gary Stern runs an incredible museum in Normandy called the Maisie Battery just down the road from Point de Hoc. He has uncovered miles of German trenches, gun positions and bunkers that you can now actually walk around. But when I visited him there, he showed me a ranger's helmet that had been found by a local farmer. It bears the famous and unique ranger's diamond. He also has a map that reveals a secret about this infamous operation that has been classified for over 60 years but more about that later. First, I asked him to explain the Rangers' mission. By the spring of 1944, Hitler was facing a war on two fronts, one in the east against the Soviet Red Army, and one in southern Europe in the mountains of Italy. 
The Allies believed that they could now defeat the Nazi regime by opening a third front against the German coastal defences by assaulting the Western Front, known as the Atlantic Wall. Operation Overlord was launched on the 6th of June 1944, D-Day, and the landings on the beaches in northern France was the start of that assault. Colonel Rudder and the 2nd Ranger Battalion are now at the sharp end. He had to eliminate the enemy coastal battery. It can be aimed at the Allied ships at sea, as well as soldiers hitting the landing beaches, codenamed Omaha and Utah on either side. If the Rangers assault on the German defences failed, it could stall the Allied invasion of Western Europe. In order for the Rangers' assault to succeed, the Allied Air Force tried to soften the German defences by dropping tons of bombs on the clifftop. And now as door breaks, the USS Texas and Saturday and HMS Taliban all join in with a naval bombardment on Point de Hoc. They struck the German pillboxes and bunkers in and around the battery to pave the way for the Rangers' assault. 261 men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion aboard 12 landing crafts were led by Texas rancher Lieutenant Colonel James Earl Rudder. A part-time football coach before the war, Big Jim handpicked his men for this daring assault. Each landing craft had a unique number. On board LAC-888 was Lieutenant James Ike Eichner, a former telephone engineer from Mississippi. He was the 2nd Battalion's communications officer. On 860 was Captain Harold Duke Slater, commander of D Company, and Raymond J. Rindow from Rhode Island. He was known as Tough Guy. 2nd Lieutenant George Kirchner a former barman from Baltimore was aboard 668 with Brooklyn-born Sergeant Leonard Bud Lamel. Lieutenant Elmer Dutch Vermeer was their demolition expert. On board LCA 860, Duke Slater and Tough Guy Randow realised that their landing craft was starting to sink. The men on board had no choice. They must drop their kit and jump overboard. Captain Duke Slater tries to keep his men together, but the huge waves drove them apart as they were tumbled in the chilling water. Sadly, one lifeless body drifts by. It was tough guy, Rindow. Despite being the best swimmer in the battalion, he becomes the first Ranger casualty. Of the 25 men on board LCA 860, four are lost. The other boats were soon in trouble. LCA 914, carrying supplies and ammunition, also sinks. Of the seven men on board, only one survived. The Rangers' assault had not got off to a great start, and there was worse to come. As the raiding party nears the Normandy coast, the Germans suddenly open up. Their MG42 machine guns firing from the top of the cliff face. The Rangers were already bailing out water with their helmets and throwing up from seasickness. Now bullets ping off the landing craft as they head for shore. 
With two boats sunk in the first hour at sea, losing men, ammunition and rations, and now the remaining fleet under fire, this daring mission was not going to plan, and they hadn't even landed on the beaches yet. The Rangers only hope now is that all their hard training and fighting skills will pay off. The 2nd Ranger Battalion was formed in 1943 in Tennessee before completing their final training with the British commandos in the UK. Lieutenant General Omar M. Bradley, commander of the US First Army, summoned Colonel Rudder and told him that the Rangers would be charged with silencing the guns at Point de Hoc to protect the invading forces landing on the beaches. He called it the most dangerous mission of D-Day. When told to expect a staggering casualty rate estimated to be around 70%, Rudder's response was typically terse. My men can do the job, he said. To make sure he had the best of the best on D-Day, Rudder began whittling down the numbers. By the end of training, only 550 of the more than 1,000 volunteers were selected for the Rangers' deadly mission. Former US Marine, Davy Smith, talked me through the kit they carried on this operation and why it was so unique. Speed and surprise would be the key to success on this mission. So the Rangers were issued with some unconventional equipment to help the men ascend the cliff face more rapidly and spring the attack. Each landing craft carried a radical new tool. Six rocket guns were designed to fire steel grappling hooks, and they carried ropes and rope ladders up to the tops of the cliffs. They also had four 100-foot steel extension ladders provided by the London Fire Brigade. These were fitted onto amphibious all-wheel drive track vehicles to help get the men up to the top quickly. Once they were on top of Point de Hoc, the fighting would begin. Most Rangers carried the reliable and standard M1 Garand rifle with around 120 rounds of ammunition. Some men chose the heaviest weapon available, the 30 caliber Browning Automatic Rifle, or BAR. Other men chose the 45 caliber Thompson or Tommy gun, also known as the Chicago Typewriter, the gun made famous by gangsters with the high volume drum magazine in the 1920s and 1930 gangster movies. Each man was also given six standard-issue pineapple-type hand grenades and the double-edged Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife, a gift from the British commandos. They also carried special thermite grenades with them. A thermite grenade causes a chemical reaction that results in extraordinarily high temperatures designed to melt the metal of the guns and put them out of action. But all the training and tools in the world could not prepare the men, some of whom had never been in combat before, for the extraordinary challenges that lay ahead. The legend you are about to hear is taken from war records and eyewitness accounts written shortly after the time. Everything is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. By 6.30am, the Allied invasion forces were due to hit the beaches, but as the Rangers approached the shore, they realised there was another problem. Lieutenant Eichner, 
looked out of the terrain ahead and it didn't look right. Comparing it to the map, you realise they are two to three miles east of Point de Hoc. The leading boat in the flotilla, now aware of their mistake, turns right and Colonel Rudder signals by hand for the other LCAs to follow him. But the raiders had lost the element of surprise and the Germans were now in a position to repulse the attack. All ten remaining landing crafts running parallel to the shore were under a wall of fire from the German guns as they make their way back to Point de Hoc. Now off course, behind schedule and under machine gun fire, the Rangers look like they're going to be too late to destroy the guns aimed at the forces landing on the D-Day beaches. Their whole mission was now in jeopardy. D-Day invasion could stall, or worse, stop dead in its tracks as the landings begin on Omaha and Utah beaches. The Allies could be massacred if the Rangers failed to take out the guns on Point de Hoc. But suddenly, something finally goes their way. Seeing the Rangers are in trouble, the USS Satellite and HMS Taliban turn their guns toward the German positions on the ridge. Awesome naval firepower finally drives them back from the cliff face, allowing the raiding parties to close in on the beach. Rudder's men, including Ike Eitner, were first to hit the beach. It is 0.17 and they're running late by over 30 minutes and they should by now have been on the top of the cliff, not just landing on the coast. They urgently need to take the enemy positions and destroy those guns. As they rushed across the narrow shingle beach, ducking and weaving in and out the shell holes, the men were hit by machine gun fire from all around. LCA 668 lands on the shore, and as Bud Lamel ran down the ramp, he was hit in the right side. He then steps off the landing craft straight into a crater and goes underwater. The men pulled him out and somehow managed to get him to the base of the cliff. There's photographs of this assault on D-Day on our Amazing War Stories Instagram page. You'll find a link on our show notes. Once the Rangers had landed, they next had to scale the near vertical cliff face. Only one of the four special vehicles carrying the assault ladders made it to the beach, but it wasn't able to get close enough to the cliffs to be of any use. The Rangers had to rely solely on their portable rocket-propelled grapnels to launch the ropes they needed to climb. The Rangers are trying to climb up the cliff with whatever ropes they had, and the Germans are trying to cut the ropes down. And now the Germans are firing at them, they're dropping grenades down on them. The ropes have become very slippery with mud and seawater, and the Rangers are sliding down and then having to climb up again. And now they're behind schedule and in trouble. Offshore, alert to the Rangers' struggle, machine gunners of the USS Satellite come to their aid again and target the Germans on the ridge. It gives the raiding party some relief 
and a few precious moments to climb to the top. At 0730 hours, as the D-Day forces begin to land on Omaha Beach, the Rangers finally reach the ridge on Point de Hoc. They are now 45 minutes behind schedule. Lieutenant Eichner sends a message to the USS Satellite. Praise the Lord, which is the code for all men up the cliff. This was the signal for Colonel Max Schneider and the 5th Ranger Battalion to land in support of the attack. They'd been waiting at sea, but now Colonel Schneider has assumed Rudder's assault has failed, so switches to his alternate plan of action and lands his men on Omaha Beach to join the US Army's 116th Infantry. Rudder's Rangers were on their own. They may have made it up the cliff, but they are behind schedule. The D-Day landings are underway and they have yet to neutralise the German defences, let alone take out the guns that will be soon targeting the invasion force. As Colonel Rudder looks over the ridge at the top of the cliff, he sees it is full of craters from the bombing. He knows they must cross these to get to the guns. And then the Germans open fire on them again. Hello! I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit, and if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. On top of the cliff at Point de Hoc on D-Day, the Rangers were pinned down under heavy fire and they had already lost a third of their force. The Germans were firing from a well-dug-in maze of trenches and fortified bunkers. So strong, they had withstood the immense Allied naval bombardment the previous night. As Bud Lamel led D Company across the deadly killing ground, machine gun, artillery and sniper fire was coming in from all directions. So they took advantage of the bomb craters for cover, leaping from one to another. Rudder needed to come up with a game-changing move if they were to survive and take out the guns that threatened to halt the D-Day landings going on below them. He decided to call in fire from the naval ships, but radio transmissions were being picked up by the Germans and used against them. So communications officer Ike Eichner came up with a plan. He used his signal lamp with Morse code to target the naval gunfire on the enemy. The USS Satterley fired a few well-aimed rounds on the German bunkers, trenches and pillboxes all around the battery. Finally, the Rangers were no longer under fire and able to advance towards their target to take out the big gun emplacements. But as they did, 
Suddenly, a shell came in from the British destroyer HMS Glasgow, which knocked Rudder off of his feet. <coughs> Dutch Vermeer saw all the men around him turn yellow from head to toe. The demolition expert realised it must have been a coloured marker shell. They were lucky. As Rudder got up, he was hit in the leg by a sniper. And then he was hit again by shrapnel from another naval shell. But Rudder stayed in command and encouraged his men to keep moving. Lieutenant Kirshner pushed forward but got separated from his men in the zigzag trench. He ran on, hoping he wouldn't come face to face with the German on the next turn. But when they finally arrived at the gun emplacement, they were in for a shock. There were no guns in the position. Gary Stern reveals something the Rangers on the ground that day didn't know. While the Rangers had been told by their commanding officer, Colonel Rudder, to attack the battery at Point de Hoc, in reality the Germans were in the middle of removing the guns from that location and in the process of upgrading the battery. There were no operational guns in position on D-Day. However, the main threat to the landings on Omaha and Utah came from Maisie Battery, a couple of miles down the road. That complex was fully operational and it was capable of hitting the landing troops. It seemed the Rangers had been outwitted by the enemy. So Rudder ordered his men to move onto the next objective and defend the main road, a mile south of Point de Hoc. Their job was to keep it clear for the advancing invasion force, who were now landing at Omaha Beach. Lieutenant Kirshner began to establish a perimeter to secure the road, but then Bud Lamell heard something. A very large combat patrol of Germans were approaching. Lieutenant Kirshner, Bud Lamell and his small group of men took cover either side of the road, ready to take on the enemy patrol. Fortunately, the unit was heading away from them, so they decided to let them pass. But then Bud Lamell saw some tracks across the road. He wonders if the big guns the Rangers have come to destroy had been moved. If so, they could still be capable of shelling the advancing Allied forces on the beach. He followed the tracks with his platoon leader, Jack Coon. And as they peeked over the hedgerow, there were the guns, with ammunition piled up alongside. Just a hundred yards away were some German soldiers standing in the corner of a field. Bud tells Jack to cover him and crept over to the guns. He dropped two thermite grenades into the traversing mechanism which quietly began to burn and melt their gears, preventing them from being aimed. As Bud and Jack made their escape, the Rangers were not flying when an explosion went off. They were shaken, but unharmed. Realising the German unit was now alerted, they ran back to the road. They discovered that another Ranger unit, led by Sergeant Rapinski from Company E, had found the ammo depot for the guns and destroyed it. And that's why the whole place went up. Rudder sends another message to the USS Satellite. 
Located point to hock. Mission accomplished. Need ammunition and reinforcements. Many casualties. An hour later, he gets a reply. No reinforcements available. All rangers have landed. The reinforcements should have been Colonel Schneider's unit, but because they didn't get the signalling time, they had landed on Omaha Beach and joined the 1st Battalion of the 116th Infantry. The Germans launched three counterattacks against Rudder's Rangers that day. By now, the men had been on duty and fighting for over 18 hours. The rangers that made it to the top had survived the landing, the climbing, and now they've been fighting and getting attacked and counterattacking through the shell holes. And there's no reinforcements in sight. They're running low on ammo. It's getting dark and they're exhausted. This is where the ranger training comes in, that mental toughness. They knew they had to keep attacking. Then, an hour before midnight on D-Day, Lieutenant Kirshner saw a flare go up. He knew this was the start of a night attack. Suddenly, there was tremendous firing, grenades bursting, men yelling, whistles blowing. German soldiers belonging to the 352nd Infantry Division launched an attack against the exhausted Rangers. Dutch Vermeer was due to celebrate his birthday on the 7th of June, the next day, and he hoped he would make it. Under counterattack from a larger German unit, the Rangers, low on ammunition and without any hope of reinforcements, tried to repel the advancing enemy. Lieutenant Kirchner takes a decisive but bold action. He got all his men together and went round the back of the German forces and attacked them from the rear. It worked. The enemy withdrew and the shooting stopped. Meanwhile, on the beaches below, the D-Day landings were in full force. It was another 12 hours before the first reinforcements arrived for Rudder's men. The Rangers, led by Colonel Schneider, have had to fight their way up from Omaha Beach. Then, another German attack comes from the fortified bunker at the tip of the point. Dutch Vermeer, the demolition expert, decided he would take it out. He worked his way round the back as the Rangers engaged it with fire. A carefully placed sack of explosive blows the doors right off. The stunned Germans emerge from the dust and are taken prisoner. On June the 8th at 11.35, more than 52 hours after the Rangers landed on the beach at Point de Hoc, the 116th Infantry Division breaks through to relieve the 2nd Ranger Battalion. But according to the findings of military historian Gary Stern, that is not the end of the story. A map found later reveals that this mission has more to it, and it was covered up under top-secret restrictions for more than 60 years. Many of the rangers quoted in history books after the war have simply repeated what Colonel Rudder's verbal orders were to them on D-Day. 
In fact, when top secret restrictions elapsed, the actual orders were released and declassified for the first time. Only then could we see the Rangers' true missions. D-Day orders given to Colonel Rudder and his Rangers went well beyond taking point to Hock and blocking the road. They were to advance to a line beyond Maisie Battery. As Colonel Rudder never mentioned his actual D-Day orders or Maisie after the war, documentaries and historians simply missed it. It was only the chance finding of the map in the veterans' clothing that led me to the battery, and now that is the site of the Maisie Battery Museum. So finally, the true story of the Rangers' action on D-Day can be told. Point to Hock was not Colonel Rudder's only objective. He was also to take Maisie Battery, but instead he ordered his men to stop at the road and await reinforcements. You can find links to Rudder's original top-secret orders on our show notes. Maisie Battery continued to fire onto the Allied invasion force and had to be stopped. It was finally silenced on the 9th of June by the 2nd and 5th Rangers, after a battle that lasted five hours. The 2nd and 5th Rangers are now commemorated each year at 11am on the 9th of June, the date and time of the anniversary of the Maisie Battle back in 1944. Point de Hoc and Maisie Batteries were ultimately taken by the Rangers, but it came at a cost. Rudder's original force of 261 men had been reduced to 90, counting the killed, missing or injured. Captain Duke Slater survived. He was picked up by a rescue boat with the other surviving men from LCA 860 and returned to England. Dutch Vermeer did see his birthday after D-Day. Post-war, he returned to Idaho to become a farmer and later a Republican legislator. James Ike Eichner, the Rangers communications officer, survived the war and returned to Texas and his old job at the telephone company. For his actions at Point de Hoc, Lieutenant George Kirshner received a Distinguished Service Cross. He stayed in the Rangers after the war and rose to the rank of Colonel before returning to Maryland. Sergeant Bud Lamell, shot as he left his landing craft, survived his wounds and was also awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and promoted to a commissioned officer for his outstanding leadership. In total, 22 Rangers were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for this mission, including Colonel Matt Schneider and Colonel James Earl Rudder. The 2nd Ranger Battalion were awarded a Presidential Citation for their monumental achievements at Point Hoc. But I also want to know more about that helmet found by a local farmer in France. I met a US Army D-Day Ranger veteran called Jack Burke. Jack landed on Omaha Beach, was involved in the relief of Point Hoc and then took part in the assault at Maisie. Jack and his men did not realise that the Germans had laid a minefield in front of the battery and a Ranger tripped an S-mine. PFC Jim Sullivan was hit in the shoulder and PFC Bob Batiste was hit in the side of the head, damaging his skull. Jack Burke was sent down the hill under fire with another ranger to rescue the two men. Dumping everything they were carrying, they dragged them both to safety for treatment. They were then sent home and survived the war. The helmet is in poor shape, but I showed it to Jack. He identified it as Batiste's helmet, the one he had left there 65 years earlier. 
The helmet is now in our museum at Maisie. If you want to find out more about this operation and the brave rangers who took part in it, then please, if you can, visit the museum in Maisie, Normandy, France. You can find details and links to their website and others in our show notes, along with those declassified documents and photos. Or you can also visit the US Rangers Museum in Carrickfergus in Ulster, where the elite US Army Regiment was originally formed in 1942. And once it's been repaired, there is the Battleship Texas historic site in Houston, Texas, where you'll be able to walk around the ship and see artefacts of one of the key naval warships that played a vital part in the Rangers raid. I really want to help museums, both big and small, in these difficult times. They've taken a financial battering, and I'm worried that if we're not careful, the important stories they hold will become locked away from the public forever. Please take the time to give this podcast a like or a review as it helps it to be found by other listeners or even subscribe. It's free. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Paul Wooding. The executive producer is Ed Sayer and the associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and music is by Extreme Music.